The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a show that covers breaking and headline news, offers analysis, commentary, and I interview high-profile public figures. Uh, in each show, I also highlight an exceptional organization, company, nonprofit, or even an individual that does great work in the community. After the headlines, I have two interviews for you today. The first one is with Assemblymember Adri Nazarian, whose district is mainly in the San Fernando Valley. And following that, I have an interview with a journalist, entertainment reporter, and the host of Pop News Edition, Shishi Yang. Here are some headlines from over the weekend as well as this morning. The U.S. topped 5 million cases of coronavirus early Sunday, and as experts have highlighted before, the true number of infections could be many times higher. The number means the country holds about a quarter of global cases of the virus and also tops the list with the most reported deaths in the world. Of the country's 5 million plus estimated cases, 162,555 have been deadly, according to data collected by the Johns Hopkins University. On Saturday, President Trump bypassed Congress and asserted his executive powers by signing four actions on coronavirus relief after the GOP leadership in the Senate refused to budge on a comprehensive aid package. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Sunday called President Donald Trump's executive actions on coronavirus relief absurdly unconstitutional. Lebanon's Information Minister Manal Abdel Samad has quit in the first government resignations since an explosion in the port of Beirut killed more than 150 people and destroyed half the capital. World leaders, international organizations, and the Lebanese public are pressing for an international inquiry into the explosion, which authorities say was triggered by a fire in a port warehouse where a huge shipment of hazardous ammonium nitrate had languished for years. L.A. County nears 5,000 total COVID-19 deaths. In some good news, however, hospitalizations continue to decline with 1,610 confirmed COVID-19 patients hospitalized and 31% in intensive care, down significantly from 2,200 level of about a month ago. L.A. reported another 51 deaths and 2,645 new cases of COVID-19 on Saturday, bringing the county's totals to 206,761 cases and 4,967 fatalities. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to bring attention to something alarming that's happening that most of you probably know of, which is that the Trump administration has declared war on the Postal Service because they know very well that amid COVID-19, this election could depend on mail-in ballots. So they're trying to undermine the post office. Trump has been trailing in polls and he's been sowing public distrust in the Postal Service and its ability to adequately deliver ballots without evidence uh, and allowing more people to vote by mail 
claiming that it will result in rampant corruption, which is absurd. There's no proof of that. The success of the 2020 election could very well hinge on the Postal Service. And right now, it's not very promising. So Trump's newly appointed Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, who is a major donor to the Trump campaign and many other Republicans, has pushed what he calls cost-cutting measures to eliminate overtime pay and hold mail until the next day if the postal distribution centers are running late. Some call what happened on Friday, Friday night massacre, when so many top executives at the post office were let go. President Obama said that Trump administration is undermining the Postal Service in an election that's going to be dependent on mail-in ballots. It seems that they're trying to turn customers away from the post office, said Jim Sizemore, who is the president of the American Postal Workers Union chapter in Cincinnati. He said that his offices are behind on deliveries because of new rules specifying when mail can go out. Senator Warren uh, of Massachusetts, of course, said that she sees signs of deliberate sabotage in DeJoy's action since taking over the agency this summer. DeJoy was appointed by Trump this June, and it seems like they have decided that the way to cheat this time around is going to be through sabotage of the Postal Service. So we really must be very vigilant and talk about this and keep this topic alive uh, since there's so much happening and just very be be very blunt about it and keep repeating it so that more and more people realize what's happening so that we can safeguard our vote. So there you have it, folks. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Assemblymember Adrian Nazarian attended UCLA, where he received a Bachelor's of Arts degree in economics. He was elected in November of 2012 to represent California's 46th Assembly District, which includes the Hollywood Hills, North Hollywood, Sherman Oaks, Studio City, Toluca Lake, Universal City, Valley Village, among many others. He chairs the Aging and Long-Term Care Committee and sits on arts, entertainment, sports, tourism, and Internet Media, Health, Rules, Budget Subcommittee Number 4 on State Administration and Transportation. Assemblymember Nazarian, thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me, Vic. Oh, it's my pleasure. First, let me ask you, is the Assembly still on pause due to COVID-19? No. No, we've been back in session, and... uh, at this point, we, we're going through all of the policy committee hearings of uh, Senate bills. Okay, I got you. You know, sometimes we take it for granted that people know what members of a state assembly do, or even state senators, for that matter. So I want to go back to the basics for those who may not be familiar. If you can sort of give us the Reader's Digest version of what an assembly member does. Uh, Sure, sure. First of all, I wish there was a better title than just assembly member, because a lot of times people get confused and wonder, what is it that we exactly assemble? Right. Uh, State senator speaks for itself. It's easier. So uh, think of us as just uh, as the uh, same as the federal House of Representatives, but at the state level. We write laws for the state. We represent our constituents. uh, And so 
On that front, if there are constituent casework or concerns that come up, whether it's, for example, DMV, uh, EDD, any of the state agencies, right now EDD is a hot one, we are here to help and advance the cases of our constituents. Third, um, the state plays a regulatory role in certain industry sectors, and so we help um, uh, provide oversight and play a regulatory role as well. So it's critical that we are um, engaged with various industries and make sure that they are doing what they have committed to do, and we are maintaining that oversight over them. And then the other thing that we bring is just our own life experiences, our life experience and our our previous practices or the uh, uh, expertise from our careers that we have, we bring to the forefront of uh, what we work on. Well, that's a very good and simple explanation. I think anyone can understand that. Thank you for that. I want to ask you before we go a little bit more into detail is from your vantage point and where you are, how do you see COVID-19 as it is today, the situation, not just national, on a national level, but state level and even local level? What's your perspective on that? Well, it, it shows that leadership is very important. Uh, good leadership and governance is very important. You know, this isn't the first time that we're dealing with um, a pandemic or the beginnings of a pandemic, but many times it never got to this stage because we had leadership in place that took the concerns seriously, addressed the issues as they came, and got out in front of it in enough time so that it wouldn't have become what it has become now. So good governance, unfortunately, gets overlooked many times because it's just like water in Los Angeles. When you turn it on, when you turn on your faucet, you get water, clean, filtered water. And you take for granted the process that goes in to providing you that water. It's the same with leadership. When you have good leadership, you don't have circumstances where you need to make life and death choices the way we we have been posed with this pandemic now. In previous administrations, we've had other COVID-related, other coronavirus-related impact in 2006 and 2009, uh, but it never got to this level. Now, of course, this, this virus is a little different uh, than the others, but good preparation and urgent response cuts through a lot of issues that then we grapple with later because at, at a certain later point, it becomes unmanageable. I think that's one. Two, when the states were left to fend for themselves and take care of, address this issue, it contributed to a lot of disorganization. I think something that California did uh, that was wonderful was that Governor Newsom stepped up and closed down the state very quickly. He responded and reacted very quickly. I think after that, there were some challenges. Uh, I think when you had several counties deciding on themselves that whether they're going to adhere to the guidelines that the governor is providing or not, and not really taking, heeding those guidelines and direction created some challenges. And so um, we've gone back and forth, and, and there was a push to open up, and so we did, and now we saw a, not even a second surge, but kind of uh, the first surge coming back ferociously and impacting us. And so now we're dealing with the consequences of that. 
Yeah, indeed. I mean, we're still lucky in California to great degree. Florida right now is a big hotspot, and so is Texas. Um, and of course, New York has been sort of the, the leading state for coronavirus cases. You know, I have to say this, when I was sort of looking up for some facts with the assembly, I did take it for granted that how much work assembly members do. There are about 80 of you from California. And for example, in like six or seven weeks, you're supposed to process about 700 bills, which is just sort of unbelievable. That number is huge to process that many bills and to read all the details and uh, do your you know, own research of mm-hmm. what's stated. That's a very impressive uh, amount of work. So if I'm not mistaken, that number is now probably the total between the Assembly and the Senate. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that because of the pandemic and the limited time to really vet a lot of the issues, given that most, if not all, of the staff is working from home, and a lot of departments and agencies have also been working from home, and so it's somewhat slowed down the process a little bit, we're probably hearing significant less number of bills. Usually around this time, I wouldn't be surprised if we had at least 2,000 bills going through the process. Wow, that's incredible. So it's, it's, even the 800 number is pared down significantly. Wow, that's eye-opening. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with California Assemblymember Adrin Nazarian. Assemblymember, I do want to go back one more time to your background because you have an interesting background. You're definitely an American success story, an immigration success story. I know a little bit about your background, but I want you to share it with, uh, with people who are listening today. Sure. Thank you for asking. I mean, this is when you're an immigrant and when you arrive to the United States, you want to just focus on getting acclimated as quickly as possible and kind of becoming, taking on the the American culture and having it be absorbed in you. And so, uh, you know, I was eight when my family, my mother and I arrived to the United States. And unfortunately, we had to flee Iran uh, because at that time, Iran went through a revolution and uh, where where the Shah abdicated his throne. And then the post-revolution, Iran and Iraq went to war, uh, which lasted a god-awful number of years, killing many, many people, over a million deaths. And unfortunately, a lot of young men would be conscripted to the front lines at age 13, 14, 15. And uh, my parents, when when they saw the war brooding, uh, were very quick to get my brother out of the country, who was at the time 16 and would have been at a ripe age to be conscripted. My mother took him to uh, the country of Cyprus, where there was a boarding Armenian boarding school, uh, and then came back and got me out of the country as well. And, and she and I came to the United States, where my sister already was. And so we were living that way with my family separated in three different continents for a good five years or so until we were all reunited finally in, the, in Los Angeles and resumed a normal life again. So I learned quite a bit from uh, grit for grit and endurance from my mother during those years because uh, she worked at three different jobs to make sure that uh, she provides for the family while managing her children who are on different continents. 
Wow. As well as her husband. That's incredible. That's resilience. Congratulations. That's that's a really amazing story. I had no idea about that part. So, and you, sort of an Angelino, you are you live in the valley, correct? I do. Yeah, I do. I've, I've been a lifelong well, lifelong since I've arrived at least uh, resident of uh, of the valley. Yeah, and where KPFK studios are for those. For those people who don't know or are listening via live stream, thank you for sharing that with me, Assemblymember. I want to now sort of look at some of the things that some of the accomplishments that you've had and some of the bills that are front and center. Let's first discuss things that are really important to you. And I know that going through your curriculum, if you will, or your portfolio or whatnot, you've been a huge advocate for uh, California and even Los Angeles having sustainability and being congestion-free and really addressing uh, its needs for transportation, housing needs, and utility needs. Uh, And you're big on water and where water is coming from and not to take that for granted. I know that's a lot to put out there, but can you share some of your sort of your thoughts on that about sustainability? Sure. One of my guiding premises when I ran for office and when I took office was to look at everything from the prism of how do you make Los Angeles and the San Fernando Valley a sustainable area to live in for the next century. You know, when when we take office, when we make policies, the policies last much longer than we do, and their impacts and consequences are critical for the next several decades. And so I use the example of the water faucet. When you turn on the water, in L.A., the faucet in L.A., it's easy for you to, to just get clean, filtered water and that you can drink right off tap. There are places in California that don't even have that benefit right now, let alone going to other states or other countries. So it's easy to take something like that for granted. And, and I want us to be very mindful that things can change overnight. I think we've learned a big lesson about that from the 2016 election, but I don't want to politicize utilities and sustainability. I'm just using that as an example that we things can change very quickly and drastically. So it's critical to make sure that we are in a position of strength when it comes to maintaining our quality water. Right now, we have to bring in our water from the north and from the east. Yet we're sitting in Los Angeles on a basin that underneath it has the one of the largest naturally existing storage facilities. We have a water aquifer right underneath us that is probably the second largest in the entire naturally existing in the United States. And so we should be getting quite a bit of our water from right underground from us. But we don't. We can't because it's been poisoned over time. When there were lack of regulations, uh, we had an auto manufacturing industry in California, in, in, in San Fernando Valley. We had many auto dismantlers that still are there. We had have a lot of uh, day-to-day businesses like, uh, like laundry stores. We had the aerospace industry. Mm-hmm. And so the combination of all of these industries and the appropriate, or at that time, before regulations were set, inappropriate disposal of these uh, contaminated liquids and waters that would have would emanate from the work that was done at the end of the day would casually be 
placed into into the ground. And so over time, that, those contaminants have infiltrated our naturally existing water storage, water facility, and now have made our water uh, undrinkable. And in order to clean that water, it's very costly. And the, the Superfund efforts, the federal Superfund efforts from the 80s were meant to help with that, but they didn't really achieve that. And so we've been left to our own devices to figure out what to do. So when I took office in my first term, uh, I passed legislation that would allow our water agencies to create a a joint powers authority, basically another form of government, so that that government, newly formed government agency, could sell bonds at a reduced rate so that it could, uh, at a cheaper interest rate, conduct these major capital improvement projects. So we now have three filtration centers being developed right here in the San Fernando Valley so that by DWP so that uh, we can start that long haul of cleaning up a lot of our underground water so that we can use more than just 7 or 8% of, uh, of our underground water. And we have over 120 wells all throughout L.A., area and all we can do is maybe utilize 20 to 30 of them at any given time because we don't want the contaminants all to be sucked up uh, from our well through our wells so we need to do it very carefully to avoid a lot of the contaminants and so so this is this is a complex area where where we've needed to get addressed for some time and and we're now taking the appropriate and hard investments in order to be able to have cleaner water in the future. That's just one example. So infrastructure is key. The other infrastructure is, is transportation. I mean, I grew up, mm-hmm. growing up in the valley, growing up in the West Valley in Winnetka, you know, it would take me and my parents you know, five, you know, ten minutes to traverse the San Fernando Valley. You, you could just drive along Victory Boulevard and be in the East Valley within, you know, within a very short period of time. Try doing that now. You can't do that. Right. Uh, it takes you, if you use surface streets, it, it'll take you, you know, at least half an hour to go from the East Valley, West Valley to the East Valley or vice versa. Yeah. And when you look at the total accumula- accumulation of these daily challenges, whether it's sitting in traffic, whether it's having, you know, a, a water system that could potentially change maybe and, and rates could go up because we are not dependent on our own water infrastructure and we have to rely on water coming from other places. When you have these accumulated effects of having little by little eroding the level of comfort you had and the expenses going through the roof, it'll become an unsafe, sustainable place for us to live in Los Angeles in the future. So if we want our children or just ourselves at an older age to have a comfortable life Mm -hmm. in the valley and continue living here, then we need to make sure that we're making the appropriate fundamental investments in our infrastructure. So that's been key for me. And housing is another component that falls into this. Yeah. You know, if we want to be able to have the same, give the same experience to our kids or our grandchildren uh, the way we had growing up in the Valley, or at least if we wanted to be able for them to afford buying a house and being close to us, well, we need to figure out how we're going to be able to grow in a smart way so that we maintain the affordability of housing for future generations.
So these are all very critical issues that go into making Los Angeles and the Valley sustainable. The second yeah. very important area for me is equity. You know, I've, I've been very fortunate when I arrived to the United States and went through my primary education and schooling. I, I pushed myself hard. I started out at Cal State Northridge, took some courses at, at Pierce College, community college, and then I ended up transferring to UCLA and graduating from UCLA. A lot of it was my work, but there was also the opportunity afforded to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was someone who was saying, if you go to college, I will pay for you. Uh, And it was that drive of my parents, my my siblings, that helped me, helped propel me. Many Californians, many Americans don't have that. Many people go through their youth not being told that they should aspire to to go to college, to advance themselves, to educate themselves, to freedom from the current challenges that their family is living through. And so something I've been working on for some time, and I tried to work with Governor Brown in the past, but it didn't really work out well, but with Governor Newsom, it, it advanced, was basically the, the concept of baby funds. You know, we have 529 scholarship program in California that allows parents to or individuals to put money aside for their for their children or for their loved ones and that money can grow in the market to a time when when they're 18 and they want to use it for their education uh, they can withdraw the money and whatever capital gains that have been accrued over the life of that account will not be taxed the initial money seed money is taxed it's money that gets invested after taxes, but then the money that grows on top of the investment over time is not taxed anymore upon usage. It's a federal program that most states, if not all states, have adopted, but unfortunately only about 3 to 4% of the individuals, of residents, use these programs. In California, it's a staggeringly low number. So what I had proposed in doing was let's expand this program and let's make sure every child born in California, regardless of any standing, regardless of whether it's from a poor family or a wealthy family, universally every child receives a small modicum of an investment from the state as a sign that the state is investing in their children. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with California Assemblymember Adrian Nazarian. Will you be reintroducing this or sort of, I know you're still working on it, but is this something that needs to be reintroduced for a second time? So I worked on a couple of bills, but what ended up happening was I worked with Governor Newsom when he was elected, and we worked it into the budget. And so there is a $50 million investment that was made last year uh, that uh, I'm hoping also that the consequences of the pandemic and the e- economic downturn we have will not end up exhausting these dollars that have been put away for this program. But the goal of this program now was for us to have some time until 2021 to figure out how we're going to implement exactly. How many dollars are we going to place in every child's account per year? You know, is it going to be a one time? Is it going to be multiple times? Because part of the goal for this is once you make the initial investment, the state's not going to be able to do too much. We're going to just open it up, maybe $25, $50, but then work with local agencies and 
local jurisdiction governmental organizations and see what they can match and then see what philanthropic organizations can do and match. And then we invite parents to then match and put in some amount of uh, dollars on a monthly basis, annual basis, however much they can do. Because studies have shown that when a child knows they have money going towards college, even if it's up to about $500 only, they are 33% more apt to pursue college than they otherwise would. Makes sense. So when you have study after study showing that there's a higher likely of participation and going to college and applying yourself, when you know someone has made an investment for you, then to me it's a no-brainer that we invest in programs like this and allow the opportunity for our children to want to pursue career-enhancing opportunities. And no-brainer. I like that you said that. It really is because it's such a great, great program, and it's really being in the solution because we talk about problems all the time, education being very expensive, universities, student loans that people have taken out that they can't pay back, especially now. This is something that's really being in the solution and, and investing in for the future so I don't understand why everyone isn't for it. I mean, I don't know if there's anyone that's not for it, but I would think that this would no, be really... No, it's actually un- gotten quite a bit of support. It's, yeah. it's just that it's, it's an issue of always a finance issue. Sure. You know, so do you invest in programs and projects we have now because we have people on the streets right now that need money, that need support, that need sure. mental health? Uh, supportive services? Or do you invest in long-range programs that help our future generations? That's that's the struggle we're dealing with. And and when revenues are limited, because California doesn't print its own money, the federal government can't print money, but we can't, it becomes harder to figure out how do you spend the limited dollars that you have? Because there are challenges right now And then there are challenges in the future that you're trying to address by making a modicum of an investment today. Yeah. But that's the main issue. And of course, COVID-19 has been a game changer. And we just have to see where things land, if you will, after this and after November. Assemblymember, just one last thing before I let you go, because I know you don't have a lot of time, is uh, I want to talk about the insulin copay cap bill that you uh, spearheaded, Mm -hmm. if you can tell us a little bit about that, because I know that that was very important to your constituents. Sure, sure. Thank you for bringing it up. I myself am not diabetic, but you and I both come from a culture, the Armenian culture and heritage, where we've seen many people suffer uh, from diabetes, uh, partially because uh, it's genetic, partially because we may find ourselves in environments where we're not getting the nutrition, appropriate nutrition that we need, or usually it's a combination of uh, genetics and environment. But having grown up and seeing many friends uh, struggle with diabetes, struggling with the fact that, you know, what you and I may take for granted of always pricking our finger to test the blood to see what our glucose rate is and what do we need to take the medication now or not. And so it's a life and death circumstance for many people, especially with those with more severe cases. And so I was always very frustrated to see that you have this basically a genetic condition that provides a monopoly to the healthcare system to charge an exorbitant amount for a life-saving drug. 
And I say the healthcare system because this is not just the pharmaceuticals. The pharmaceuticals create, you know, develop the, the medication, insulin, and process the insulin, and then they sell it into the market. And the insurance companies or the payers that pay for it and based on the rates that they purchase at and then apply it wherever is needed, they're the final ones who are placing the price in the market structure. So you have insurance companies placing a certain rate on these drugs, and then at the back end, recovering a certain amount through the copays. Well, the copays in insulin aren't just $50, aren't just $30. They are, in some cases, they reach up to hundreds of dollars. I've heard of instances where some individuals who need to use multiple 30-day doses in a month period, because some folks have a more severe case, need to end up spending upwards of $500 for insulin. Wow. Now, what does someone do when they only have, let's say, an income of $2,000 a month, a rent of $1,200 a month, $500 just for the drugs they use, and then they have to spend, and then 300 for everything else, food, utility, insurance, car payments, you name it. It makes people, it puts people who are already struggling in a very dire circumstance. And so the bill that I had proposed uh, with, with partnership with the California Health Trust and the ADA, the American Diabetes Association, was to cap the co-pays of insulin to only $50 a month. And if you are going to need to use multiple vials of insulin per a month period, then your copay would be capped at 100 So it was not going to be more than $100, but for a great vast majority who only use a 30-day amount per month, it would be $50. This bill flew through the assembly, but unfortunately now it's stuck in the Senate Health Committee, and uh, it's been a great deal of uh, frustration and, and, and disappointment that uh, it's been stuck. So let's get blunt. Who's, who's holding it up in the Senate? Well, it's um, Senator Pan, uh, a Sacramento-based senator, who is the chair of Senate Health Committee, okay. uh, has cited that there are policy issues that is forcing him to hold the bill. The reality is that I had had multiple conversations with him uh, as early as March of this year, and uh, those policy concerns were never really cited to me. If uh, that was the case, then we would have been trying to find a resolution with him. The fact that the bill is not even getting a hearing uh, tells me that this is there's something else going on that I cannot, I, I don't understand, nor have I been given a reason. Lobbyists, perhaps. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. I, I can. He's given me several different reasons. Initially, he said that this is not a COVID-related bill, and uh, I, I couldn't disagree with him more. When you look at the statistics of how many people have died so far, of the number of people who have passed away because of COVID-19 virus, over 40% have been diabetics. So even though I started working on this bill before this pandemic, this bill all the more became relevant because of how many people, how many diabetics have been left vulnerable to this disease. And so if you have someone who is rationing their insulin right now because they can't pay for their drugs, and so they're rationing one month's worth of drugs over two months or three months, they're making themselves susceptible to 
falling victim to being hospitalized. And if they're hospitalized and, God forbid, are infected in the process with, the, with COVID virus, then it comes directly to us that we didn't help create a stopgap from people falling into that cir- uh, circumstance. Yeah, I actually know someone who passed away from COVID-19 and he, was, he too was diabetic. So it makes total sense. And hopefully things will change in, in the Senate. And so many people can obviously benefit from this. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with California Assemblymember Adrin Nazarian. Uh, Assemblymember, before I let you go, I want to ask you if there's anything else that I should have brought up that I missed, perhaps you want to add, even a call to action, perhaps? <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all yours. Uh, I, you know, the only other thing I would bring up is I, I mentioned to you about the sustainability of, of Los Angeles and San Fernando Valley. I talked about the equity piece that is very critical to me. The third, I would say, is our elderly. Uh, aside from being the chair of aging committees, something that has really bothered me throughout my career and, and looking at how we also just as a society market, we heavily market on you know, everyone from ages of one to 35. And then at some point, it goes away. And then and then you start marketing again towards the elderly folks. That's how culturally we've become adapted to. But when you look at the numbers and you see what the needs are, right here in California, we're dealing with a scenario where on a daily basis, 10,000 individuals are becoming senior citizens. Wow. And they are going to need services. They are going to need supports. Right now, currently, with only seniors, 60 years and older, making up 12% of California's population, we're not even in a place where we're meeting their needs. In another 15 years, it's estimated that that number of 12% is going to grow to become 25%. One out of every four Californian is going to be a senior citizen. If we're not in a place where we can provide for the services and needs that they have now, how are we going to be dealing with these situations when the number doubles? And so this is something that concerns me a great deal, because when you have a scenario where most of the seniors who haven't saved and are depending on federal or state uh, incomes and supports to be able to get by, and the number is going to drastically also increase over time. It concerns me a great deal that we are we have not been really focusing on our elderly population. And right now with the pandemic, it's exacerbating all of our focus and energy, and it's taking away from the opportunity to make the appropriate investments that we need to make. So this is going to be an area that we're going to need to spend a lot of time in addressing and making sure how we're going to be able to pay for the needs of our elderly going forward. It makes total sense. And hopefully, if there is a silver lining to COVID-19, it would be that we finally are forced to look at this and look at the the needs of the aging population, baby boomers, and our senior citizens. And with that, Assemblymember Nazarian, I want to thank you for the interview to be on The Blunt Post with Vic. Appreciate your time, and good luck in Sacramento. My pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity to be heard. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
That was Assemblymember Audrey Nazarian from right here in the Valley. Assemblymember, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. Appreciate your time. The Blunt Post with Vic. Shishi Yang has gained international recognition as an entertainment journalist and pop culture commentator across CNN and HLN's flagship shows Newsroom, Morning Express with Robin Mead, On The Story, and others. Since 2015, she has anchored live red carpets for the Associated Press, delivering live streams and interviews to AP's global network of syndication partners. In 2018, Yang launched Next Generation Content Powerhouse, XYZ Media. Shishi recently launched a new pop culture show, Pop News Edition, created to bring dynamic, diverse, and in-depth pop culture stories to a worldwide audience. Shishi, welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. How are you? I'm doing fantastic now that I'm talking to you, Vic. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you for being on the show. A lot of exciting things are happening for you, at least of which we should just go right into it, which is uh, Pop News Edition, and is already launched, and it's on multiple platforms. And uh, But before we get into that, I want to hear about your background. I know you have a journalism background. You went to... NYU and you at UCLA, and you've worked for uh, multiple prominent publications and media outlets. If you can tell me a little bit about your background. Sure. Well, I think I really have a unique perspective when it comes to my experience in media because, you know, ever since the very beginning, I have always been a self starter. I don't know if it's because I've just been entrepreneurial ever since I was little. But um, so when I went to uh, New York University and UCLA, I knew I didn't have the type of job that I wanted where I could just rely on my degree and start working as an entertainment journalist. I know I wasn't born a Kardashian and I know I wasn't dating one. So So I realized pretty quick on that I had to forge my own path, which is at the age of 19, I actually started my first blog for pop culture, which I eventually took and expanded into a weekly show here in Los Angeles. And then I started working with some of the bigger scale media outlets like the Associated Press. I noticed I was the first Asian-American woman to anchor live from the red carpet solo for the AP, which was such a big moment, not just for myself, but, you know, to be able to represent a whole culture of people and have little girls write to me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, social media, every single day saying, you know what, I want a job like yours. How do I get it? What did you do to get there? So I'm really excited. And um, at this point in my career, I'm really, really thrilled to be introducing a new program and a new network to a whole global audience called Pop News Edition, because I realized that there was such a big gap between uh, what the consumers actually wanted to see in pop culture versus all the content that some of the big networks are delivering. I realized that you know, there's not a lot of diverse voices, and a lot of the entertainment news companies were so focused on pop culture, uh, like gossip, celebrity gossip, which we've done a lot of case studies on. And unfortunately, a lot of millennials and Gen Z just don't care about those salacious gossip anymore, especially given our current period of 2020 and some of the you know biggest current events happening in the world right now. I think everyone's kind of digging deeper. Absolutely. Good to hear that. Yeah. So in terms of 
Pop News Edition. Tell me like the the way it's set up, like the segments and what people can expect or people who are watching already. What is it like? Topnewsedition.com. Every single day there are news articles uh, uploaded, uh, not just from some of our journalists over here in Los Angeles, which is where I'm based, but in New York and all over the world as well, because we realize that in order to truly put out content that resonates more with a diverse demographic, we have to have representation, not just for the content we put out, but voices represented in different parts of the world as well. We've got satellite studios and satellite teams in Shanghai, in Mumbai, India, Cape Town, London, and a few other places as well. So it's, diversity has been really important to us. And then on top of the articles, we also have three to five minute long daily videos, which also airs on uh, popnewsedition.com and then uh, our YouTube. And then we've got a 30-minute weekly show on Amazon, Hulu, and we're hoping to get it on Roku and a few more OTT platform places. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of accomplishment, getting it on all those networks, especially Amazon and Hulu. Thank you. I truly believe that streaming services are the future because as consumers, and I'm sure you know this, Nick, because you know I see you being super active online and on social media. Um, as consumers of news, you know we really get most of our news from the internet nowadays, and how we watch news is so different too. No one's really, <laughs> no one's really, you know, <laughs> waiting for the uh, six or seven p.m. weekly night programs. Everyone wants to binge watch. Right. You know, I still enjoy my like New York Magazine long form articles, but I know that that's becoming more and more you know, more of an exception. And of course, like even NBC uh, this last week started to restructure considerably and announcing that they're going to be concentrating on streaming. So networks are starting to feel that unless they really put a lot of emphasis on streaming and the new technology and the way people are consuming news, as you said, they're going to be in bigger trouble than they already are. So in terms of the pop news edition, what what are some of the things that people can expect in sort of like avid, like in the middle of COVID-19, how are you adjusting to what's happening globally? There's so much chaos and negativity going on. Is there any kind of an overlap there? Um, COVID-19, uh, along with the protests and everything that has been going on, has essentially forced not just Hollywood, but the media to speed up some of the changes that they've been wanting to make for the next five to ten years. And a lot of the, even the entertainment news, a lot of how COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement is drastically changing award show season 2021. And we're also uh, doing an investigative piece on TikTok, which I can't share too much about, uh, we want to basically break it down to our viewers, you know, exactly how is politics, what is at the intersection between politics, social media, and pop culture, because it's no secret that TikTok is one of the hottest apps out right now. But, you know, <laughs> our uh, President Trump is attempting to ban TikTok, but, you know, we want to know the ramifications of that, how that's going to influence, um, you know, a lot of artists that have gained huge momentum on TikTok, like Megan Thee Stallion, as some rappers as well. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Shishi Yang, the host of Pop News Edition. Yeah, absolutely. That is 
that's a really good way of putting it, politicizing a social media app. And of course, in the last couple of days, we've we've seen how our president is also trying to manipulate the U.S. Postal Service, a lot of restructuring there, anything to benefit his reelection. You know, my show is called The Blunt Post, so I'm going to be blunt about that. So yeah, I just can't fathom that a social media app would be banned from the U.S. It just it just smells like authoritarian government or a decision. Um, it really does. It really does make our audience, our viewers and readers realize, you know, for so long, so much of what we associate with entertainment news is just celebrity gossip. But I believe that it's time the new generation of pop culture consumers and entertainment news consumers want something a lot deeper. If you think about it, you know, you and I were actually talking about this the other day, Vic, but pop culture is essentially the world's culture. No matter where you're from, what world, what part of the world you live in, what language you speak, what your story is, chances are you love some form of entertainment. So I believe in the power of entertainment. I think it's the most popular form of content and the most powerful form. So to us, it's been our mission since day one to create Pop News Edition that can get our viewers to kind of go beyond the headlines and see, you know, how influential entertainment is, how influential, you know, social media truly is and how everything's connected. Yeah. And what I've really enjoyed seeing is that the younger generations, Y generation specifically, they have really become a lot more conscious and involved in social justice. And this is right up their alley because now this really affects them uh, directly to not be able to have TikTok. And it's not just about TikTok. It's really about what does it take for something to be taken away from you just because an elected official is bothered by it. it doesn't benefit absolutely and you know it's a big dominoes effect and this is something that has never done before uh president trump just issued an executive order i giving tiktok 45 days to either sell to an american company or to ban it completely which means the users that already downloaded on their phone they won't be able to receive any updates and the app will slowly but surely phase out and die out but, um, you know, I, I believe in globalization. I'm a firm believer that everything in our world is interconnected. We're all connected to each other. Um, and, and I do see a huge fallout, not just for TikTok, but ByteDance, the parent company that also has um, investments and stocks in various other American companies as well. And kudos to you for doing that investigative piece, because um, I don't think it's talked about as much, and especially the angle that you're taking. So I look forward to seeing that whenever it comes out. What? Would- Thank you. We're really excited because for us, timing is truly everything. You know, um, <laughs> it's good that our government cares about our uh, personal safety, protection, our data. But at the same time, we wanted to explore a little beyond the surface. You know, why now? Why bite dance? You know, uh, what are some of the things they're doing that may be violating our security that, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, some of the other social platforms haven't done? Or, or is that, you know, or is it kind of irrelevant? Absolutely. So going back to, you know, globalization and trends and such, when I travel, I'm always amazed how in certain parts of the world or just a specific country, a group, uh, maybe a rock band or something is so huge there that it's kind of like 
it's like their religion. And then we Americans are sort of clueless. <laughs> so you travel yeah. a lot. And I'm just wondering, what are some of the things, trends or people or acts or groups that you, know, you can tell us about? Maybe we'll be the first, you know, we'll hear it first from you. Absolutely. I'm really excited when it comes to movies. I'm excited not just about everything happening in Hollywood, but things happening in Bollywood as well. And then there's another rising hub in Africa called Nollywood, which is based in Nigeria, Lagos. So I'm really excited about um, how, uh, how things are shifting. And, you know, when it comes to music, uh, a universal language that we all love, I'm excited about the overwhelming amount of pop stars, K-pop stars coming out from Korea, C-pop stars from China. And then now we've got J-pop stars from Japan as well. And um, sometimes we only find out about them, uh, you know, in America when they come to, like, the Billboard Music Awards, American Music Awards, or the Grammys. You know, and we're shocked by how many fans they have. And, and I've witnessed this um, myself with BTS when I was covering the Grammys this year. I saw they had a huge legions of fans lined up around the Staples Center trying to trying to just catch a glimpse of their favorite stars. And so, so to me, the demand has always been there for a network that looks at pop culture from more of a global perspective, not just dictating what's hot in Hollywood, but on a world scale. I like that. And I think one of the things that surprised me, and I have, I'll admit, I didn't know about Nollywood. I had no idea that Nigeria had emerged as a an entertainment hub and productions, so many productions are, are happening there. No clue. Yeah, they have. And, uh, you know, it, it's still an uphill battle for Nollywood to get the type of representation they deserve in Hollywood. Um, Nigeria's only hope of a film, I think it was a documentary, and I talked about this at the Oscars when I was hosting this year for the Associated Press, they actually uh, didn't meet the qualification of being a foreign film because uh, because the Academy said in order for it to be a film movie, it has to be shot in a different language. But I, you know, I'm one of the journalists that like to challenge the Academy on that because Nigeria's official language is English. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So I, I do think, you know, as more film hubs are popping up all over the world, uh, projects are being shot in different parts of the world. I do think um, in order for us to progress, we really have to uh, challenge a lot of the old standards and rules for, um, you know, for the Academy, for the Grammys and for a lot of other accolades in Hollywood. Yeah. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Shishi Yang, the host of Pop News Edition. The Academy and just the Hollywood establishment has sort of slowly tried to make some changes about representation and diversity. I think they still have a long way to go until we get to a point where it's it really reflects the landscape of America and who we are and globally too as well they do i'm excited for all the changes and i'm a firm believer that thanks to the internet social media streaming services nowadays numbers talk you know uh, the decision is necessarily made by network executives when a, when it comes to which projects to green light which shows to invest in what shows going to production but, you know, pe nowadays people can uh, watch whatever they like, and, and I, I'm a firm believer in that. Yeah, you're right. Numbers do talk, and uh, whoever has the biggest audience 
obviously that's that's power. I mean, just to hear that nowadays when actors, up and coming actors are trying to get an agent or manager or even get an audition, one of the things that they're asked first is, how many Instagram followers do you have? Which is really interesting. Exactly. But, um, but at the same time, I, I do see, uh, I, I do want to encourage um, a lot of our listeners who may want a career in entertainment, whether they want to be like an actor, actress, director, musician, I encourage them to really utilize all the tools given to them via social media and create their own marketing. Because when you have built that brand, uh, you don't have, you basically have leverage, even if you are, you know, for example, if you're an artist and you're about to enter into a contract with a music label, you don't have to accept whatever 360 deal they want you to sign. Yeah. What I like about Pop News Edition is that it sort of like encompasses everything that's everything that's really entertaining and important and inclusive all at the same time. Yes, we're excited. And we wait to have you on, Vic. We'd love for you to contribute and bring on your vision, your background, mm-hmm. your perspective. I would love to. It would be an honor. You know, can you just one more time tell um, listeners where to go, like, you know, whether it's on Amazon and Hulu, Times, Dates, all of that, and also the, the website itself, if they want to go directly to popnewsedition.com, etc. I really encourage everyone to check out popnewsedition.com. We're going to have daily articles, daily videos on there, too. We're also on YouTube, in case you happen to have, you know, missed some of the segments we have on Amazon and Hulu. And please feel free to tweet me, Instagram me, Facebook me across all platforms. My user handle is at Shishi Yang, spelled X-I-X-I-Y-A-N-G. I really want to hear from you guys in regards to what type of entertainment content you care about, what is you know what you uh, will want to see more of, because we're doing this for you. We're doing this for all the viewers. So I'm excited to make it interactive. That's great. And thank you for, you know, doing this platform, doing this show that's not only entertaining, but it's inclusive and it takes people's um, ideas and and feedback and incorporates it. So I don't think you need luck for that, but good luck for with that. (laughs) Thank you so much, Vic. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to have you on Pop News Edition. I can't wait either. And um, thank you for uh, being on The Blunt Post with Vic. And I shall talk to you soon. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was journalist and the host of Pop News Edition, Shishi Yang. Shishi, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. Appreciate your time. For today's quotes, I'm going to read you three recent tweets from uh, very diverse people uh, from over the weekend, starting with Senator Kamala Harris. And she said, It could not be more clear that they're trying to take down the United States Postal Service from the inside at a time when we need it most. Congress must immediately step up to save the Postal Service and safeguard our elections. There is no time to waste. That was Senator Kamala Harris. The next one is from director and politico Michael Moore. He said, Trump threatening to delay the election? Oh, Mike, he can't do that. The Constitution won't allow it. Right. Tyrants always back down when confronted by rules written down on a piece of paper and enforced by an attorney general. Let's rumble. 
That was from Michael Moore. The last tweet is from Cher, who is definitely not a fan of President Trump. She said, Trump killed Latino children because he thought that the Trumpians would be happy. Jared told Trump, COVID will only kill people in the blue states. So Trump said, it's just going to disappear. Trump killed 162,000 Americans and says, it is what it is. He kills without shame. That was from Cher. Before we go, I would love to thank my very hardworking producer, Ricky Herrera. And thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blonde Post with Vic. Tune in next week, next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. And you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. They are both at Vic Jarami. So at Vic Jarami for both Twitter and Instagram. The Blunt Post with Vic.